Welcome to the Fort Hill Community Church Sunday morning sermon taught by Pastor Aaron Manning. All right, so we are in John chapter 12. All right, John chapter 12, starting verse 27. We're going to go to verse 34. It's great to be here with you again. I was gone uh, last Sunday. I'm thankful to Scott who can do more than just get water for me. He can also preach the Bible, which is good. Um, but I'm grateful to be back here with you uh, today as we continue in our sermon series through the book of John. We remember that this book was a book written by Jesus' beloved disciple, the disciple that Jesus loved. That's what John called himself. And he wrote this, uh, this gospel here, this message of Jesus' life, so that we may believe. And as we've worked through it, we're more than halfway through getting towards the end of the book. We're going to see today that things are changing for Jesus. There is a stormy cloud on the horizon as his hour is coming. As this hour comes, this hour of his crucifixion, we're going to see today that it is an hour of dread. I don't know if you have ever had something in your life that you just felt a pit in your stomach about, that you were dreading a thing that was coming up, maybe something that was happening later in the day, later in the week, later in the month. There was a set time that you had to do with this thing, and you just did not want to deal with this thing. Uh, For me, a couple of years ago, I had an hour of dread that I thought was going to be fun and exciting. It turned out to be absolutely terrible. I joined the local Gorham Rec soccer team. Okay, not quite the same thing as dying on a cross, but it was for 20 to 30 year olds, and I thought this was going to be great, and so I joined this soccer league. We played once a week at 10.30 at night, and what I failed to account for were a few things. One, that I was old. Two, that I was terribly out of shape. And three, that I was just just fat. There was really no way around it. I was just not what I used to be in high school, okay? And not only that, I wasn't nearly as skilled as I remember. And so I joined this soccer team thinking I'm going to teach these kids what's going on. Just the opposite. Have you ever been so tired that you got tunnel vision? Has that ever happened to you before? That happened to me every single week, Okay, so I'm joined 10 of of these matches every week. Oh, I got to go there. And I could have just not gone there, but I wanted to go. I paid the money. I wanted to connect with people. We're just starting the church. I want to be able to connect with with guys my own age. It turned into an hour of dread joining that soccer team. We also see Jesus here with an hour of dread, an hour of trouble that we're going to see in John chapter 12, verses 27 to 34. But what we're going to see, this hour of dread is going to turn into a different hour. We're going to see first, it's an hour of glory for Jesus. Glory of the cross. It's an hour of judgment for the world, for Satan. And finally, result in an hour of gathering God's people together. And so let's turn to John 12, verse 27 to 34. Going to read through it. And then let's work through it together. Jesus is saying here, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. 
Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. So they couldn't hear this audible voice. They thought it was a thunder. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. So a little bit of a step up, not quite there. They didn't understand this was God the Father, but at least it's not thunder. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever, this Messiah. If you're the Messiah, you shouldn't die. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? That's the question, probably the most important question you could ever answer with your life. Who is this Son of Man? We meet Jesus here, and his soul is troubled It's an hour of what I'm calling a troubled glory. He starts off first. He's actually, prior to this, in a conversation with um, these Greeks, non-Jews, who want to meet him. And then he pivots in verse 27 into a prayer. And he's actually praying right now. And he prays to God, My soul is troubled. I have a deep sense of dread. Like having a pit in his stomach. Can you think about that? And Jesus, that, that's got to tell you the amount of emotional turmoil he's going through. He, he knows the end from the beginning. He knows what's going to happen, right? He knows the glory. It says in, in uh, Hebrews, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. So he has joy. And even in that, the amount of pain and suffering and rejection that he's going to experience, it's a pit in his stomach. It's a pit in his stomach. For Jesus, this hour is abundantly worse than the hour that I experienced every week with my soccer team. Let's just go play by play what's going to happen to Jesus. He will be, in short order, betrayed by Judas, arrested by the Jews, deserted by his disciples, denied by Peter, unjustly tried by the Sanhedrin, and finally convicted, mocked, tortured, flogged, and crucified by the Romans. A lot of terrible things done to him by a lot of different people. Not just one person. You might have maybe one person in your life that you don't like, one enemy. This is a concentrated effort against this guy to take him out. This was his hour. And in a moment when Jesus' human nature just shines through, again, we believe Jesus is fully man and fully God in different parts of the Gospels. We see that expressed, more the God part and the transfiguration. Today, we're going to see more of the man part, where he says, What shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? Should I say that? He asked rhetorically. In the book of John, we don't have the story of the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the closest that we come to it. In that garden, right before Jesus is arrested, it says he's praying so intensely that drops like blood come out of his out of his uh, out of his head, and he prays, "Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours, be done." As I read this, 
I recognize how different Jesus approaches trouble and how different Jesus approaches just really difficult situations than I do and maybe different than you do. Whenever you are in trouble, what do you pray for? Pray for deliverance. Lord, this is terrible. This is the worst thing ever. Help me. Deliver me. Bring me to safety. Whatever that issue is in your life, you want God to take it away. Okay? And that's not a bad thing. Our God is a God of deliverance. I think about David in the Psalms. He says, I'm in the pit. Lord, the Lord rescued me out of the pit. Right? The Israelites were calling out to God while they were enslaved in Egypt. And the Lord delivered them. Our God is a God of deliverance. But just notice what Jesus prays for. He doesn't pray for safety. He doesn't pray for deliverance. He doesn't pray for any of that stuff. He prays for glory. He prays that God would be glorified. Again, shall I pray? Going back to the verse here. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Rhetorically asked and rhetorically answered, no. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour, Father, glorify your name. To pray for safety, if Jesus had prayed for safety here, we would have no salvation. If Jesus had prayed for safety here, there would be no cross. If Jesus had prayed for deliverance here, there would be no sacrifice. There would be no salvation. Instead, he prays for glory, not my will, but thy will be done. There's a lot for us to learn from this example of Jesus. And I think the first thing that I learned, and maybe you should learn, is to seek glory, not safety. That's a hard word. Seek glory, not safety. We are risk-adverse people. Okay, and I think especially with COVID, we've seen that, and obviously there's a lot of concern with COVID, but no, whenever the Lord calls his people to gather together, and people have not done that for a year and a half now, right? Risk-averse people. It's good for me. I make my living. I'm an insurance agent. That's how I make my living, right? But living for the glory of God is inherently risky, and you need to understand that. What does Jesus say? Take up your cross and follow me. Die to yourself. It's a big risk. It's a big risk. Whenever we pray that God would be glorified, if that's our prayer, it's essentially open-ended. We put everything on the table. And we say, all right, God, your glory, here's my whole life, my job, my income, my finances, my relationships, my goals, my dreams, my aspirations. Here it is on, on the table. Be glorified through that. And the Lord says, okay, we're going to take this out of your life. Okay, we're going to rearrange this part of your life. You're like, God, I didn't mean that right? Not that. You can have the stuff on this side of the table, not this side of the table. You're praying for safety. Whenever you pray for glory, you have to understand, for Jesus, the glory of God was a Roman cross stained with his own blood. That was glorifying. Because in that cross, salvation came. Maybe glory in your situation isn't deliverance from trouble, but endurance of trouble. Have you ever considered that? Maybe the path of glory in your life is leading you to pain and suffering, 
Very encouraging message for you this morning. Let's show you how deep it goes. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Peter is writing to the church in Rome. This is a persecuted people. And this is what he says. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trouble when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Man, he just sets us up. Lord, I'm, I'm going through all these terrible things. I'm, I'm suffering here. And Peter says, well, what did you expect? Following the man of sorrows. It's not a bug, it's a feature. Continuing on. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Whenever we suffer for the sake of Jesus, whenever we choose the glory of God, and that, that doesn't, look, it doesn't mean your life's going to be terrible, right? God blesses his children. I'm blessed. And I, I prayerfully, I, I pursue God's glory. That doesn't mean that. But just leaving it on the table, that could happen. We are called to rejoice. And it's a double rejoicing. We rejoice first insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. If you suffer for the sake of God's glory, you should rejoice first, and you rejoice again that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. We rejoice in the suffering, we rejoice past the suffering, whenever God's glory is revealed. If anyone suffers as a Christian, I think that's an important nuance there. If you're being a jerk, right? Don't rejoice in that if you deserve it. But if you're suffering for the glory of God, let him not be ashamed. Let him glorify God in that name. Let him glorify God in that name. And so I want to encourage you as Christians, as followers of Jesus, this is really what makes it real. This is what makes it real. Whenever you have to choose, make that hard decision, and you do it purely because you know that this is what God is calling you to do, man, that makes it real. Whenever you have skin in the game, Christ is so convenient for us whenever we don't have skin in the game. But whenever we do, it makes it real. Do not live your life in fear. Forsake all things. The Apostle Paul said he treated as rubbish compared to the glory of knowing Jesus as his Lord. If we live a life purely of safety, purely looking after our own interests and desires, how much glory are we robbing from God? There's a better way. There's a better glory. There's a better name. It's not your name. It's not your glory. It's the glory of God in Jesus Christ. That might seem risky from a worldly perspective, but from an eternal perspective, it's not risky at all. Who conquered sin and death? Jesus did. Jesus did. The worst thing has already been taken care of. It's not risky in this world, but we don't live for this world. I think about the very end of um, John 16. Jesus says, in this world you will have many trials, you will have many tribulations. What does he say? But take heart. I have overcome the world. 
He has overcome the world. My soul is troubled, yet not my will, but thy will be done. It's an hour of trouble, glory. Continuing on, we see that it's also an hour of judgment. An hour of judgment. This hour of glory is also an hour of judgment. Jesus says this in verse 31, after God, after he's done with his prayer and God's audibly responded to him, the people are confused, they don't know what's going on, and Jesus addresses them now. In verse 30 he says, uh, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. And then he makes this pronouncement to them. Now is the judgment of this world. Now is the judgment of this world. There is no word more vile to our modern ears than the word judgment, right? Or being judged, or being called judgmental. It is the unforgivable sin, this word, okay, to be, to be convicted of being judgmental. The second best well-known verse in the Bible, we got John 3.16, that's number one. In competition for number one, Matthew 7.1, judge not, lest ye also be judged. Just shuts down any conversation you're trying to have with someone, right? End of the conversation. And yet Jesus says, as his glory is revealed in this hour, so judgment comes in this hour. And see this, it doesn't fall on just a few of us, it falls on all of us, myself included. Now is the judgment of this world. Of this world. The whole world is put on trial. In this hour, in this hour of crucifixion, in this hour of shame, in this hour of death for Jesus, the whole world is put on trial. The question is, what is this trial for? What is this trial for? If you go to John chapter 5, verse 24, John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. What we see is we are put on trial whether we believe in Christ's words or not. That is the trial that we are put on. Jesus comes. He says these words. He says, I am the Son of God. He says, I have come to seek and to save the lost. I have died. I will resurrect. I am the King of the world. Will you believe his words or not? Jesus is positioning this hour of his crucifixion as the great dividing line of history by which all men and women will be judged. This is the question, and this is what separates the Christian faith from all other faiths, okay? Did Jesus truly die on a cross? Did Jesus truly raise from the dead? That's what, that's what the hour is, okay? Did Jesus die on a cross? Did he raise from the dead? This is what makes the Christian faith so different than any other faith. Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, all these different worldviews, all these different religions, all these different ways of thinking about God. The Bible comes along, Jesus comes along, okay? And he says, I want you to take all these thoughts you have about God, just table them, just get rid of them. Even the Bible, just get rid of it, okay? Put it all over here. Put it away. This is the question that you need to ask yourself, and it centers on this hour. 
in real life human history, okay, just as George Washington crossed the Delaware, was there a man, Jesus, who claimed to be the Son of God that was both crucified and resurrected? Did it happen? That is the hour. And God says, based on your response to that, yes or no, that's the trial you're put on. Where is the body? Where's the body? Think about that. God set up his message in the whole Christian faith. He set it up as a house of cards. All you have to do is find the body. It's all fake. Literally. You can disprove the faith. Can you disprove any other world religion? Not that I know of. But you can disprove the Christian faith. Just find the body. Don't you think they would have done that? As these people are preaching a different king against Caesar, a different king against Herod, a different ruler against the, the Jews that had the power. What would the best way be to squash that? Find the body. To my knowledge, they haven't found the body. And we believe they haven't found the body. There's no body to find. It's not there. It's resurrected. This is the judgment that comes to the world. Where is the body of Jesus? This is the hour, and it comes to everyone. It comes to everyone. It comes to you. Where is his body? The next part shifts our focus. We have the judgment of the world. Now we have the judgment of the ruler of the world. Second half, verse 31. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. The ruler of this world. Who is the ruler of this world? Well, the Bible tells us the ruler of this world is Satan. Okay? We believe God's word tells us that there's a physical realm. We live here now, but there's a deeper realm, a spiritual realm. We're not just physical beings. It's not the Big Bang and that's it, right? It's more than that. God created all things. He created me and you. He gave us a soul. He gave us a body. There's a spiritual realm beyond this realm. And while God is indeed the ruler of all things, he created all things, the Bible also teaches that there are spiritual forces of evil. And I think, I think most people are, are open to that. Some people aren't. If you have a purely materialistic worldview, then you probably aren't open to that. But I think most people are open to that. Most people believe in heaven. Less people believe in hell. But if you believe in heaven, there's got to be some type of spiritual realm in that belief. As Christians, we understand that there is evil, that Satan does exist, that demons do exist. And the Bible calls Satan the ruler of this world. Okay? The ruler of this world. That doesn't mean that Satan is the ultimate ruler of this world, but it does mean this side of heaven, that he exercises some level of rule and authority that both tempts us and induces us to sin and keeps us from seeing Jesus, okay? This is what it says, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. This is our spiritual state. This, the Bible has a very pessimistic view of human nature. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Who is the prince of the power of the air? Satan. Continuing on, 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says this, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. 
Satan's role in this world is to keep people from seeing Jesus. Okay? Continuing on, 1 John 5.19, this is really the diagnosis. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So that's the concept here. Satan is on a throne. He's ruling, limited rule, but ruling over this world, keeping us from God, keeping us in sin. We're falling away from Jesus, that there is a reality above beyond this physical realm. I don't know if you guys have ever seen Stranger Things before, the show Stranger Things, okay? In the show, there's the underworld. I think that's the name of it, the underworld. So there's the physical. It's a show about kids in the 80s being crazy. I don't know. It's, it's a good show. Anyways, um, there's the physical world, and there's the underworld. And the underworld is like this shadowy, you know, weird monster demon world. Anyways, that world exists beyond the physical world, and as things happen in the underworld, it affects things in the physical world. That's a terrible analogy. You can forget it if you don't, if you don't like it. But that's, that's kind of it, okay? And so Satan is on a throne, and whenever Jesus rolls into town, and this is, this is why I say that. You've got to put on your spiritual glasses here, okay? So physical, let's put on our spiritual glasses. The triumphal entry, okay? Jesus comes in on a donkey. Smelly, stinky, small donkey. He is a humble rabbi. He's a humble pastor, okay? You know, regular guy, a little bit overweight, five foot nine, maybe dark curly hair, has kids, looks very tired. That's the type of guy Jesus is, okay? That's what he looks like on the outside, okay? If we're putting our spiritual glasses on, we don't see that. If we're putting our spiritual glasses on, we see Jesus as an exalted, radiant king on a war horse who is coming to the throne, an illegitimate and corrupt ruler, and cast this ruler out of his kingdom where he can no more exercise power over his people. He says, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. It's an hour of judgment. It's an hour of judgment. The jury might be still out on the world. Maybe you will believe, maybe you won't believe. Maybe the judgment comes on you, maybe it doesn't come on you. But the judgment on Satan is final. The king has come back to his kingdom and has kicked out the old king, the old ruler. He has dethroned the old regime. Praise God for that. I don't live under the power of my old flesh, of my old way of life. I don't live under the power of that king anymore, that ruler anymore. I live over the power of the greater king, King Jesus. A part of a different citizenry, a different kingdom. Colossians 1.13 says this, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. This is what is accomplished on the cross. It looks like a rabbi crucified. It looks shameful. It looks, it looks like death. But from an eternal perspective, from a spiritual perspective, it is victory. Jesus is victorious, and he's defeated Satan. Now is the ruler of the world cast out. This hour of judgment gives way to an hour of victory. It's a victory for us. As the last thing we see with this hour, it's an hour of gathering. Verse 32, Jesus says this, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. 
When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Continuing on the theme of the victorious king, Jesus says that this victory will result in a gathering of a new people all together with him. A few things for us to look at here. The first thing he says is whenever I am lifted up, we're going to look at the term lifted up. The book of John, his writing style is double meaning. Jesus says he's the light of the world. He's the bread of life. And there's a double meaning there. This term lifted up carries two meanings in the same way. Okay? Whenever Jesus is on a cross, he is literally lifted up, right? He's brought up high. He's in, in the pictures. He's in the middle. I'm assuming he's in the middle. He's higher than everyone else, but he's literally lifted up. In his resurrection, Jesus is literally lifted up from the dead. But figuratively speaking, in both of these instances, he is lifted up in glory and exaltation. His name is lifted up. Think about whenever Jesus is crucified. What do they write on, um, on the cross there? What do they write? They wrote, here is Jesus, King of the Jews. And they wrote it to mock him. But whenever they actually put him on the cross, whose name was over every other name? The name of Jesus, right? The name of Jesus. Philippians 2, 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. The very act of crucifixion that lifted him up, that was designed to bring shame, in reality brings glory, because it's by that act that salvation comes. And so now those who looked up to Jesus and believed in him and confess his name are gathered together as his people. And it specifically says here, whenever I'm lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. It's a very important word, all people. I don't think it means everyone is saved. I think it means all peoples, all kinds of people, because the Bible is clear we all individually have to respond to Jesus. But it's interesting here. Who is Jesus talking to? Who is Jesus talking to? This entire conversation is occasioned by Greeks, Gentiles, that is non-Jews, people that historically have been on the outside of God's promises, people that have historically not been near God as his chosen people. And now Jesus comes full circle. And he says to these people, Yes, you've been on the outside looking in. You've been strangers to the promises of God. But now you, you can be gathered to me as my people. What an amazing word. There's so many people that think that they're just too far gone from God, right? Given my history, given what I've done, given all these things about me. I, you know, having conversations with people, inviting folks to church. They say, I've got to get my life together first before I can, before I can go to church. It's like, no, you can't do that. You've already been trying to do that. <laughs> Look where you're at, right? Not to put you down, but to offer you something better. To offer you something better. All people, that distinction between Jew and Gentile, the farthest cultural distinction, Jews would not hang out with Gentiles. Jesus says, I'm going to bring all these people together. They're going to be my family. They're going to be my people. I'm going to gather these people together to himself. And so as we consider these words, I want to offer two things, an encouragement and an exhortation. First, encouragement, okay? If you have Jesus, you are a citizen of a new kingdom. You have been drawn by the king to himself. 
He's brought you to him. Okay? No one, you think about like, you know, sand in your, in your hand or water in your hand, right? And, it, and some kind of slips out. That's not the hand of Jesus. No one can snatch them out of my hand. That's what Jesus says earlier in the book of John. And because of that, you will be gathered to him in the last day. Doesn't, this world, whatever happens in the world, doesn't matter. Because we know the ending. I was going to read this, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. Paul is offering encouragement to the Thessalonian church because some of their people in their church have died and they're afraid that they've kind of missed the boat and that these people won't be in heaven, okay? This is what he says. For the Lord himself, Jesus, will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an angel, archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. So Jesus will come and it will be trumpet blast and the whole world will kind of look to the sky. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who have been left, will caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I want you to understand that as a church, each Sunday that we gather, we are acting out this passage. Okay? This is why COVID and people being we're not able to gather, right? That's why it was so, such a challenge for me and, and you know, for God's people. We ha- we're gathering people. We have to gather. We have to reenact what is going to happen at the end whenever Jesus comes back. This is what we do. We are gathered people, gathered God's people as Jesus as our king. You are kingdom people. So be encouraged in that. Whatever the trial is, whatever the tribulation is, right? Maybe God is leading you to that. Maybe he wants you to endure it. But we know the ends. We are citizens of a new kingdom. Satan has no power over us. Praise God for that. Finally, an exhortation. You are kingdom people, so act like it. You're kingdom people, so act like it. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. This is just expression here or an example. It says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. Okay? That argument you got into with your wife, don't wait for the morning. I don't care if you get in the argument right before bedtime. Right? Make up. Okay? Why? This is why. Give no opportunity to the devil. Your kingdom people, give no opportunity to the devil. Other translations, I like better, says give no foothold to the devil. So think about it. We're new people, we're kingdom people, we're in God's kingdom, we're outside of the domain of darkness, brought in the kingdom of the beloved son, and whenever Satan comes around to the wall, we give him our hand and say, all right, Satan, jump over the wall. Come on in. That's the, that is the picture there. Give no foothold to the devil, and yet we still sin, right? And yet we are still tempted, and yet we still do things and put ourselves in situations that we know we ought not do, right? It's like lifting him up, bringing him into a place that he doesn't belong. He's not a king of that place anymore. He's not a king of your place anymore. He's not your king anymore. Don't give him a foothold. And this is the promise, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. So this is not new, what you're experiencing. God is faithful, and this is how he's faithful. He will not let you be, to be tempted beyond your ability, 
but with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The promise to the kingdom people, to God's people, not that there won't be temptation, but whenever it comes, God will provide a way of escape. As a kingdom people, we cut things out of our lives. Whatever tempts you, and I know there are a million and one things that tempt you, especially in this world, you need to cut those things out. Jesus said if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to be lame in this world and go to heaven than to be whole in this world. Obviously, it doesn't mean be blind. What he means is you need to cut things out of your life that lead you astray and make you bow to a different master. You need to equip yourself with God's word. You need to be in the community of the church. This is what life in the kingdom of God looks like. This is the hour, and it's the hour of progression. It's an hour of trouble, but an hour of glory. It's an hour of judgment. It's an hour of judgment of the world, judgment of Satan. And through that, at the end, it's an hour of gathering. That's what Jesus says. But what we're going to see, and this is to conclude, and this is really just to leave it here with you, we're going to see finally, all these things were true of Jesus, but to the crowd, what they saw, it was an hour of confusion. Verse 34 says this, They heard all these things Jesus said. They respond, the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. So you're telling, we have this preconceived notion of who you should be, but you're telling us something different. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Jesus has laid it all out. He's shown them the end from the beginning, and yet they remain confused because they have preconceived mo- uh, notions of who this man is, what he should do, who she, he should be, They couldn't bear it. Today, if you are hearing these words, and I know we've gotten into some deeper things, talking about judgment, talking about Satan and the spiritual forces of evil and whatever. I know it's a little deep. It's a little bit big. Maybe there's pieces of you that don't want to jive with this. Maybe there's pieces of you that are bringing in thoughts about God, thoughts about Jesus, thoughts about the Bible, and you're reading this and it just doesn't jive. Don't be like these people. Take him at his word, okay? Take him at his word. Let him speak for himself. As as we read in John 5, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me, it's that person has eternal life. Don't listen to me. Don't listen to this world. Don't listen to Facebook. Listen to what Jesus himself actually says. You need to respond to his words here. You need to respond to that word here. What happened in this hour? Is he resurrected or not? It's the most consequential hour in the history of humanity. You must understand that our entire culture, our entire way of life, especially in the Western world, was shaped by this hour. We tell time based on this hour. Cities were named based on this hour. San Francisco, St. Francisco, I guess. <laughs> San Diego, San Diego, right? What are they saints of? The church. Where did the church come from? It came from this hour. We need to think about this hour. What we, do we believe by it? Prayerfully, we will respond in faith. Let's pray.
Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenge that comes with this. We pray, and I pray, as the word has come, that you will meet us where we're at. For those who have already believed and made that confession and found the salvation in Christ, may we respond with renewed faith, Lord. May we respond understanding who our king is. Maybe there's a foothold. Maybe Satan has us in certain regards. Maybe we're tempted and we're falling time and time again. Lord, we need that reminder. He's not on the throne of our lives. He was kicked out 2,000 years ago. And any time he sits there, it's just a lie, Lord. He, he's not actually there, and yet we can treat him like he is. Lord, help us to be a kingdom people. Shape us into a kingdom people. Remind us of that. For those that do not believe, Lord, for those that aren't quite there yet, I pray that they would just look and take him at his word. What is this man? This man has shaped everything. He's touched everything. Believing or unbelieving, just shaped our lives. Who is he? Who is this son of man? That's their question. Who is this son of man? May those questions come, Lord. I know for me those questions came. I began looking for answers, and I found them. Lord, I know that those answers are to be found. We thank you you do not leave us astray, not leave us alone. We thank you for that hour that we're going to get too farther in John, that it does come. But Jesus does not stay dead, but he is resurrected. We praise you for that. Lord, be with us, help us, lead us, apply this word. May we respond to you in faith. We love you. In the Christ we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the Sunday morning sermon taught by Pastor Aaron Manning at Fort Hill Community Church in Gorham, Maine. For more information about Pastor Aaron or Fort Hill Community Church, visit us on Facebook or check out our website at www.forthillchurch.com.